following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. We're going to be in verses 14 through 29, finishing out chapter 12 today. Uh, as you're turning there, I'd like to just encourage you with something. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, we'll have the verses on the screens. If you don't own a Bible, please let us give you one after the service. We'd be really thrilled to do that. Uh, I had an encounter that just, it, it encouraged me and reminded me of one of the many reasons I love this church. Uh, this last Wednesday, we were out uh, doing the, the outreach we do every week for those experiencing homelessness, and I met a fellow uh, that had just the clothes on his back. I can't remember if all his stuff had been recently stolen or gotten wet or something, but so we always take clothes out there. So I'm standing with him at the, the back of my vehicle, sorting through things to find out what fits him and whatnot. And so we're talking and asked him uh, what he thinks about Jesus. And he said, I love him. And I said, that's awesome, dude. Me too. <laughs> so that's a, always a good way to start. So um, we, we were talking about that, and, and then I asked him, you know, how long has it been since you've been able to gather with God's people and, uh, and worship with them? And, you know, it took him a second to think about it, and it probably stretched back to roughly 2013. He had lost his wife, and uh, there's a couple other things that had happened that, that were hard, and so he, his life kind of took a, a downward turn. And so I said, well, um, and he was, he was from Tennessee, not super familiar with the area, so I explained to him where we were and said, well, look, man, no pressure, but you'd be welcome to come worship with us on a Sunday. And here's, here's the part that got me is he, he said, would I really be welcome to come like this? Because like, this is all I have, man. And I was able to say with him with 100% confidence, yes, you could come. And I think that really matters. I think that's really important. I, I, had, I had no fear that if he came in and just what he had, that this church would treat him any different than anybody else. And that's precious to me, and I, I hope it matters to you. Just wanted to encourage you with that. Hope you found your Bible verse. We're in Hebrews 12. You there? Okay. So, <clears throat> we pick up today in Hebrews 12, which started with a therefore. Okay? So that therefore ties Hebrews 12 to the hall of faith in Hebrews 11 with the idea, this is therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses, speaking of those that were mentioned in Hebrews 11 and other saints that have gone before, uh, <clears throat> since, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses, uh, trusting God and accomplishing his purposes by faith, we were then encouraged to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter, some translations say finisher of our faith, the only one who ever lived a perfect life by faith. And, and so this is how Hebrews 12 begins. And so why are we being pointed to all of these encouraging examples? Because the chapter starts by calling us to this, to run with endurance the race set before us. So therefore, we have this great cloud of witnesses. Because of that, let us now run this race with endurance. Setting our eyes on Jesus, who we talked about is the prize of this race. 
So the author then gives us another major key on how to do this. So besides looking to the examples of Jesus and the saints who have gone before us, this next key he gave us is thinking correctly about the discipline of the Lord, encouraging us to be thankful that he is a good father who actually loves us and doesn't just leave us to flail around in our foolishness. So the, the what of chapter 12 is living a life of faithfulness to God, using the analogy of running and finishing a race without giving up. The overarching why, okay, so that's the what, the overarching why is to glorify God because he has proven in Christ and through the witness of the saints who have gone before us that he is altogether good and that he is loving and powerful and thus the only one worthy of our worship. So that's the overarching why to the what, but the author also gives us not just that overarching why, but then more specific, practical, and applicable whys to help us accomplish the what of running this race with endurance, okay? So today's verses, I know that was a little, I have a point, okay? There's a reason why that sounded like it sounded. Today, verses 14 through 16, the first half of verse 25 and the second half of verse 28 are going to give us more details on the what, what, what else does it look like for us to run a race of endurance, a life of faithfulness before God? Why? Because Jesus did. Because we have this example of so many others who did by faith. It is possible. Look, that was the point. That's the stream of thought, okay? So 14 through 16, first half of 25, second half of 28 are going to give us more of that what. What does it look like for us to live for God, running our race with endurance? And the rest of what we're going to read today is going to give us more of the why. And here's why I took the risk of that confusing series right there. Here, okay, here's my question. Aren't you glad? I'm glad. I'm hoping you're glad that God is a more gracious and patient parent than we sometimes are. Is, has anybody in here besides me ever reached the point where patience was worn down as thin as a sheet of paper. And, and that, what that meant was you gave the infamous answer when a kid asked you why they needed to do something or not do something. Who wants to take a guess at what that infamous parenting answer is? Because I said so. <laughs> That's all. That's all you need to know. You have all the data you need. This mouth said those words. <laughs> Shut up, right? Now, if anybody ever had the right to say that, it is the omnipotent, omniscient creator of all things that exist, right? If anybody ever actually had the right to just say, because I said so, it's God. And yet, our good Father devoted so much of his word to explaining the why to us in patience and grace. Four of the 15 verses we're going to read today are the what. 
while nine are to help us see the why. And I'm not telling you that that ratio always stays the same, but we're dealing with a God who didn't have to give us any whys. He's not obligated to. And yet, look at his love and patience for us. Look at his great mercy upon us. Let's read together then Hebrews 12, 14 through 29. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification, some of your translations, many actually will say holiness there. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau who sold his own birthright for a single meal. For you know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness, and gloom, and whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet, and the sound of words, which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to the myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Praise God for his word. Let's get to work here, because there is a lot of work here. Verse 14, let's get back to the beginning here. Pursue peace with all men, and the sanctification, or as I said, many of your translations say holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. This, right off the bat, could, it's one of those places that can conjure confusion, because without a careful understanding of what's being said here and what's not being said here, it could seem contrary to the overall message of the entire book, which is the new covenant of grace under Christ as the high priest is superior to the old covenant under Moses and the Levitical priests and all of that, right? And and But this idea is, you know, you you think about even the juxtaposition we were given here, Sinai and and Zion, if you weren't clear what was happening there, the first mountain with the smoke and and the trumpets and all of that, that's Sinai, okay? That's where Moses received the law. And and this second one, he tells us, is, is Zion, where Jesus is the one uh, in charge, okay? And so <clears throat> what, what we have here is the, the possibility for you to read that, and, and some do, and try to bring, bring that in to mean this. Uh, yeah, sure, you can be saved initially by grace, but you're going to need to continue, you're going to have to make sure you stay saved by staying holy. That's what, the, that's what they think that means, Okay? Here's the problem with that. We are saved by grace through faith alone. That is the clear, resounding truth of the scripture from Genesis to Revelation. But what do we do with this? Well, James helped us with this, didn't he? He said faith without works is dead. So here's, here's anytime you encounter something like this, unclear passage of scripture, help us interpret unclear passage of scripture. It is, clear, it is clear, there is no question that we are saved before God by God's grace through faith in Christ alone. 
if, if this author didn't believe that, then everything we've studied in this book thus far makes no sense. Because he's arguing completely thus far for, hey, don't go back into a system where you are either fully or partially counting on your obedience or, so, or some other so, less than perfect sacrificial system that has to be continually happening over and over again. You got one shot. You got one hope. There is only one way you're going to be in reconciled relationship with God, and it's through Christ. Don't run back to the old covenant. Don't run to some other system of, of man. None of it's going to work. God has made a way for men and women to be sons and daughters, not rebels. And it's through faith. It's the grace of God through faith. So how do we summarize what we're seeing there? We are saved by grace through faith alone, but faith is never alone. If you are truly saved by faith, there will be with it a desire for and a growth arc of holiness. Sanctification is what the New American Standard Bible says. And I think that's probably more precise. The, the problem is sometimes, like, I remember verses in other translations, right? Like, I, I, don't know, I don't know how many say holiness, but when I think of this verse, I think of the word holiness, not sanctification. But they, it's really talking about the same thing. But sanctification is maybe more on the nose because it helps us understand, okay, we're talking about that process of becoming more like Christ, okay? We are justified by grace through faith in Christ, and then there's a process of, of us being conformed in his image, made more and more like him. And if that's not happening in any real way, then this maybe never happened is the point. We are saved by grace through faith alone, but faith is never alone. With it will come good works. Motivated by love, not guilt and fear. Amen. Okay. So then he says, pursue peace with all men. <clears throat> Let me, what does that mean? Well, I think, I think Paul got into it with a little bit more explanation in Romans 12. So let's ask for Paul's help and assist here on what it means to be at peace with all men. I'm in Romans chapter 12, verse 14. Well, that's interesting. I just noticed that. It's Hebrews 12, 14. Huh. Hadn't put that together yet. Doesn't mean anything necessarily, but <clears throat> kind of cool. Uh, so here's, here's Paul in Romans 12, 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never repay evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all people. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. Does that sound familiar? So really, kind of give us a run-up, a little more description of what that looks like, okay? And so here's more. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I, I think the writer of Hebrews could have wrote all of that next to pursue peace with all men. And, and those same details, it's, we're talking about the same thing. Paul just said, as much as it has to do with you, be at peace with all men. Which is helpful, because sometimes you could, you could feel a sense of false guilt if you can't get someone else to be at peace with you. That's hard, but here's what we need to understand. 
we can't control what other people are going to do in terms of whether we're going to be in peace or not. But I can tell you what I can control, what's going to go on in my heart and mind about it. As far as it has to do with me, I'll be at peace with all men. Now, isn't it interesting? I, well, I'm going to tell you it is interesting. <laughs> I think it's interesting. that <clears throat> Why does it seem that peace with all men is tied to the overall all idea of sanctification or holiness in the mind of the author. Do, do you see the series there? <clears throat> Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Are those just totally separate ideas, or is there a reason why, as, as this author's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, those ended up right next to each other in the same flow of thought? Well, I think, what are we talking about? We're talking about living a life by faith, running a race with endurance, and we're getting some more right now. We're, in the, we're still in the what section, right? 14 through 16, I told you, right? We're still looking at what it looks like to, to run a race with endurance, a life of faith and faithfulness before God. And it, why would peace with all men be, be closely linked in the mind of the author to the overall process of sanctification or holiness or what it looks like to live before God. Let's think about that. Galatians 5, verse 6 says this, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor circum uncircumcision mean anything. Okay, So similar flow of thought here. This isn't about Old Testament ritual. That's, that's not what's going to determine, uh, be, because of Christ, that's not going to determine relationship with God. But what is it? It's faith, okay, we're talking, what are we doing? Hebrews 11, hall of faith. Hebrews 12, let's, let's run a race with endurance like they did, by faith. Like Jesus did, by faith. We're still talking about what it means to live a life by faith. It says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision mean anything but faith working through love. Now that's a phrase. What does that mean? Faith working through love, hold on, like, I think of Corinthians, like, you know, these three remain, faith, hope, and love, like, you don't necessarily, it's like, yeah, God wants us to have faith, and, and God wants us to have love, and, and there, there may be these separate things, but hold on, this is saying faith works through love, faith working through love is what's going to matter. What does, that, what does that mean? Well, I'm sure it means much more than our finite minds can grasp, but I'm gonna, let's just give it a whirl, let's think about it a minute. Okay? <clears throat> Here's the premise I'm going to give that I'm going to then try to defend. I believe what that faith works by love. If you like King James, faith worketh by love. You like that better? Sounds a little fancier, doesn't it? Okay? What the heck does that mean? I'm, 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 I'm going to uh, submit to you that love both precedes faith and proceeds from faith. That faith works by love. And that's, that's really important because faith is a big deal. Remember what it said in Hebrews 11? It said we need something and without it, it's impossible to please God. You remember what it was? Go ahead, Love City. It's faith. Okay, so that's important. But faith works by love. Hold on. What does this mean? 1 John 4 verse 19 says, We love God because he first loved us. Premise one, okay? So 
first I'm going to try to defend that love precedes faith, and then I'm going to try to defend that love proceeds from faith. That faith, faith on both ends works by love. Because you could see it as one or the other. I think it's both. Romans 2 verse 4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and restraint and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? There's also, and, and later when we get to this comparison of Sinai and Zion, we're going to come back to this. So make sure you didn't fall asleep on me because this is a linchpin for this whole thing right here. Okay? So what does he say? He says, it's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. Now let's remember this. This is important as well. When we think about the word faith, what are we, what are we thinking? Because we have to remember that faith is not mere belief. Isn't that right? And I think many times we relegate the word faith to belief. We think if I have faith in God, it means I believe in God. James said, demons believe in God and shudder. Don't you understand... Demons don't have God-pleasing faith. You understand that? But they do know that God exists, and they know a lot of true things about God. They may know more about him on some things than we do. They've been around a while. Okay? So faith is not belief. Starting several weeks ago, we worked off of a different definition, that faith is confident trust in and obedience to God and his word. Confident trust in and obedience to God and his word. That's a biblical definition of faith. So what we see here in in what we've built so far is that God loves us first. This draws us to him and we respond in faith and loving him in return. So this whole thing starts with God loving us and us loving him. That's where it starts. That's the faith being preceded by love. Because part of my contention to you is that How are you going to have confident trust in and a willingness to obey God if you don't really believe he loves you? And what he has said for you to do is for your good. And what he has said for you to not do is for your good. And that's why you will hear me sneak that idea into just about every sermon I possibly can. Because at the root of much of our disobedience is a lack of faith. It's a lack of confident trust in God. What do I mean when I say that? Confident trust in God and who he is. That he is good. That he actually does love you. That he actually does know what he's talking about. If you don't have a confident trust in God and his character, you will not obey him. There will be doubt that will creep in. And it will cause you to go your own way and try to come up with your own solution. Try to seek out your own peace, your own satisfaction. I could probably open up the mic and we could share stories for the rest of the day of how that has gone in each of our lives. It's a thumbs down from me, dog. Okay? So we have been loved by God, we love him, and now have genuine faith. So, so now what? Okay? Now, so, all right, there's love, there's faith, now what? When Jesus was asked the greatest commandment, okay, so now we got someone standing up saying to Jesus, hey, what, what does God expect of us? What is the most important thing that God calls us to, right? Give me the most important commandment. And Jesus gives what sounds like two. He doesn't give one. 
He says to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. But he chains them together and doesn't leave a gap in the middle. And then 1 John 4.20 says, if someone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother and sister whom he has, just in case you didn't know what he meant, I love John. In case you didn't know what that meant, the one who does not love his brother and sister whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Can't do it. Okay, so now we, got, we have faith, we have love, now what? Now I'm talking about, so, so I tried to establish for you that love precedes faith. Now I'm trying to establish for you that love proceeds from faith. That faith is wrapped in work in and works by love. I've been thinking about now for several weeks. I don't know how I've been a Christian this long and not thought about the fact that the Bible talks in, in this land. It talks about walking in love and it talks about walking by faith. I'm like, how did I miss that? I mean, what a, an incredible summary just to put those. I've been praying that now for several weeks. Lord, help me today walk in love and by faith. It covers the whole gamut, man. That's it. If he can help me do that, I'm going to stay out of so much trouble. I'm going to stay out of so much pain and goofiness and foolish thinking and wasted time. Faith works by love. And that's, well, we'll be back to that. Just, just keep a pin there. Let's look at verse 15 now. <clears throat> See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many being defiled. The commas are kind of unhelpful in some ways maybe, because I think, again, in the way that I'm, I'm saying to you, I think pursue peace with all men and the sanctification or holiness without which no one will see the Lord. What I'm saying to you is I think those are next to each other on purpose. This isn't a list of four separate things that just kind of junk drawer ideas of what it looks like to run a race of endurance. I don't think that's what it is. I think they're where they are next to what they're next to for a reason. I think pursue peace with all men in the mind of the author is very much tied to what it looks like to, to serve God, period. Because if loving God and loving people is at, the, is at the top of the heap for Jesus. If John said we can't even run around here saying that we love God if we don't love the people around us. And if, if what this is talking about is holiness, living in a way set apart for God, like God, or, or, or the idea of sanctification where we're becoming conformed more and more to the image of Christ, the point is a big part of what it looks like, period, to be a Christian and to run this race is to pursue peace with all men. And you're not going to be able to do that without walking in love. You're not going to be able to do that without remembering what we read that Paul said in Romans 12. Right? And, and so again, see to it that no one comes short of the grace of God. That's an attention getter. It should. If that didn't get your attention, listen up. <laughs> okay? See that no one comes short of the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by it many be defiled. In the same way, I think the other two ideas were connected. I think these are too. Not accidentally. Matthew 6.14 says this. 
<clears throat> this is Jesus talking. So if you, have, if you don't like it, go talk to him, okay? For if you forgive other people of their offenses, this is at the end of uh, the Lord's Prayer. For if you forgive other people for their offenses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive other people, then your Father will not forgive your offenses. Now again, how do you, how do you read what Jesus just says? Like, oh, okay, so it's faith, it's grace by faith and forgiveness by which I'm saved. It's, it's grace of God and, and faith in God, and, and then as long as I do the good work of forgiveness, then I'm saved. Is that what Jesus is saying? Is Jesus going against encountering the entirety of what the rest of the scriptures teach us about how we're saved? No, but what he is saying is exactly what the parable of the wicked servant tells you. If you have genuinely experienced the forgiveness of God, you will not be able to live with yourself withholding forgiveness from other people. You won't be able to do it. And if you can do it, that's scary. Something's not connecting. Some dot is not connecting. If you can sit in a root of bitterness and unforgiveness towards somebody else after having been showered upon the, the immeasurable amount of grace that God has showered upon you. And that is the point of the parable of the wicked servant, right? Guy goes before the king, owes a lifetime salary. The king is moved with compassion. You're forgiven. This little doofus runs out in the hallway and finds another servant and owns him the equivalent of 10 bucks. I mean, who cares? It's a really big amount and a really small amount. That's not the point. The point is, then he grabs the other servant, choking him, and demands that he is put in jail until he can pay what he owes. What he didn't know is the other servants saw it. And they rolled back up in the throne room and said, Hey, king, that guy you just sent out and forgave all that? Guess what? And the king said, Bring him here. Lock him up. He's done for. It's not a game. That's why I think we're talking, how can we fall short of the grace of God? The grace of God never fails, but we can fail to rely on the grace of God. We can fail to receive the grace of God, and we can fail to operate in the grace of God. The grace of God will never fail. It does what it does. And I realize, I can feel it in the room. For me to talk this black and white about forgiveness with no caveat thus far is uncomfortable for some of you. Because you're either thinking of other people's situations or your own situations. And many times, it feels like there is justification for unforgiveness. It may even feel like there's a justification for bitterness. And there are caveats that can be said. Defining forgiveness is important. Forgiveness does not mean continuing to let somebody mistreat you with a, a, just a, a, a free pass. That's not what forgiveness means. Forgiveness has a lot to do with what's going on in our heart and mind towards them and between us and the Lord towards them. A good test of have I forgiven them is can you pray for their good with genuine prayers? That doesn't mean you're staying in a situation where someone's hurting you or harming you, and, and, and that can look a various bunch of different ways, okay? So let me put that caveat in there, but I don't want to do too many caveats today, because sometimes you can caveat something into total meaninglessness. 
I want the weight of the fact that this says, let no one fall short of the grace of God or some root of bitterness that defiles many take root and do its work. I think we should sit with that. And I want to help you with something. We could, we could complicate this. We could psychologize this. We could, we, there's lots more things we could say about it. But I just want to, tell you about, I want to tell you about when the revelation of this hit me and how it happened. Just, just to give you the idea that sometimes, man, we talk in circles around stuff a little too much. Sometimes it is just simple and to the point. As a child... I, I suffered some abuses that I'm not even going to talk about in here because I, I know it'll be a trigger for some of you and you won't hear the rest of what I have to say. Just trust me when I say it was some jacked up stuff, okay? And then I was moved out of that situation to, to, to live with my mother at age 10. And about age 11, I remember riding in the car with her one time and, and the probably chief perpetrator of the abuse I looked at my mother and I said, I don't think I can forgive her. And my mother, if she, mom, if you're watching this, I don't mean anything by this. I love you. My mother's not a theologian. My mother's high concern is not about theological precision necessarily. But I'll tell you what she did. And, and think about this. This is, this is a mother who knew about what was done to me and, and so had to overcome all the mama bear instincts to look at me and say this when I said to her, I don't think I can forgive her. She looks at me. I'm not, it wasn't soft either. If that's true, then God can't forgive you of your sins. I said, well, that solves that. I guess I need to forgive her. Lord, help me. And I praise God. I was 11 years old and hadn't been introduced to a bunch of ways I could have talked myself out of that or made it more complicated than it really is. Because it really is that simple. She was right. And I'm glad she said it with force. I'm glad she didn't pat me on my head and say, oh, sweetie, I know how hard it was. You better figure out how to forgive her because the Bible... My mama will talk. Because the Bible says... If you don't forgive her, the Lord can't forgive you of your sins. And thank God I didn't have the, the academic sophistication at that point to talk myself around or justify my bitterness. It didn't mean that right there at that moment all the healing that needed to happen for me to really and truly forgive happened, but at least set me on a trajectory of saying, okay, well, Lord, I'm going to need your help with that because I'm going to need forgiveness for sure. Now, I know there's some of you that don't like that whole last five minutes, but some of you need it, and you realize you need it. And the rest of you, I'm, I'm praying for you, because we really do all need it. At one level, some things are simple. You can overcomplicate it if you want to. I thank God for my mama on that one, <laughs> for sure. Verse 16. But as it is... That's chapter 11. That there be no immoral or godless person like Esau, who sold his own birthright for a single meal. Part of what we're seeing here, again, so it, we're, in the, we're in the what. How do you run a race of endurance? Part of how you do that is not getting pulled into the foolishness and the lie of instant gratification. When it says no immoral person like Esau, there is a, there is a uh, 
there's a, there's, there's a sexual component to that immorality. There's in tradition, the Bible doesn't really say this, but in tradition, Esau was, was known to be a sexually immoral guy. I, I don't exactly know where that came from. That may be what's in the author's mind, or just more broadly, a, a, the sign of immorality and the godlessness is that he sold his own birthright for a single meal. And here's, here's the bottom line. We will have temptations constantly as we're running this race. Our legs will be tired. We'll be tired of jumping hurdles. We'll be tired of the whole thing. And we will want to just sit down and have an icy man. Just let me, let me just take a break, whatever that might mean for you. And uh, that's <clears throat> the, the, the temptation towards instant gratification as opposed to having a long view, eyes set on Jesus, eyes on the prize kind of view of walking out uh, however many years the Lord grants us on, on this earth. It, it's kind of a constant temptation to just... Not, not have our eyes on the prize, not keep pushing forward with endurance by faith through the grace of God. And, and this is giving us just an example of, of how and why not to do that. Uh, and one thing to think about is when it comes to you know, what faith looks like, there's an encouragement in this reality. You know, Jacob ended up with the birthright through deception. And, and here's what's funny. Jacob went about it the wrong way which is helpful for me because God in his sovereignty, even though Jacob was a deceiver, still used him for his purposes. So, so glad <laughs> that God uses imperfect people. Uh, that matters to me. You can decide if it matters to you. Um, but so Jacob didn't go about getting the birthright the right way, either the blessing from his father or making sure he had lentil stew ready when his famished brother came in from the field. That's a punk move, right? And yet, what we do see is that at least Jacob valued the blessing of God. At least Jacob thought it was worth something. And even though he was, he was a wily little deceiver, it was, it was really his faith in the fact that God's blessing was worth something that meant he was the one that ended up carrying it on down the line. I don't know. Something to think about. So that gives us that ends the kind of section on, on what. Now we're going to be back to why in verse 17. For, for, and here's the clues how you can do this for yourself. So I don't have to diagram every Bible chapter for you, okay? But asking yourself, what, is this a what or a why? Is just a helpful way to study anything. But the Bible in, in, as well, okay? So now we're back into the why. So what does it say? Pursue peace with all men. No root of bitterness, uh, don't, no immoral or godless person like Esau. For, you know, here's why, that's, those are what to do, here's why. You know that even afterwards, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no place for repentance, though he sought for it with tears. Here's a really hard lesson from Esau's life. I don't have a ton to say about this, but man, it's worth thinking about. Sometimes, even when there is remorse or even true repentance... It doesn't mean all the consequences disappear. I mean, and that's just, if, 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 you just, if you just want to be wise about it, that's just really good ammo to stick in the cannon for when I'm tempted to do some old foolish stuff. Like, ultimately, what's in view here with Esau and the birthright, all that, is, is not, it's not eternal salvation. That's not necessarily what's in view. What's in view is the fact that he gave up his birthright and the blessing, and there was no way to get it back. 
Like he made some dumb choices, and now they, the, the consequences stuck. I think most of you, you know, most of you know what that means, right? I, I do, <laughs> right? But that's just something else to think about, man. It, really what that should help us with is to keep our eyes on Jesus, keep our eyes on the prize. And when, when we start to feel that fatigue that is, and, and then, you know, we're talking to ourselves about how, man, I'm, I'm just, I'm tired of running this race and, and I just, I just really want to slow down. I just really want to maybe run on a different track for a while. I'm sick of this track. When all that kind of stuff is happening, man, it, it should help us. Think about Esau. <laughs> Sometimes, man, when I, when I make, because a lot of times the the, the teaching of the grace of God in our, gosh, we're so silly. Sometimes we can actually think really terrible things like, oh man, you know, I know, I know Jesus, I know Jesus will forgive me. Oh, don't do that. Don't do that. That's, that's, that's playing with the grace of God type stuff. That's yucky. Don't do that. And even even if you really are deceived in that moment and that, that's what leads you astray, you know, look, is when, it, when we're talking about repentance and, and coming, if you come to God with true repentance and faith and, and your trust is in the grace of God, then salvation is yours, right? If your trust is in Christ for salvation, then it's yours. But that doesn't mean there's not other consequences in this life that you will have to bear up under as a result of, of choices that we make. So helpful little tidbits if you want them. Okay, let's keep going. There's more why. Now he comes to this idea of, of Sinai and Zion. And we're going to take this together, verses 18 through 24. For you have not come to a mountain that can be touched into a blazing fire, into darkness and gloom and whirlwind, to the blast of a trumpet, the sounds of words which sound was such that those who heard begged that no further word be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command even a beast touches the mountain, it'll be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I'm full of fear and trembling. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to the myriads of angels, to the general assembly, the church of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, he's the big point, the mediator of a new covenant, to be sprinkled with blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Now, the work we did in verse 14 really does help us. You remember that whole thing about faith and love and how they work together? Love preceding and proceeding from faith? Okay, that, that really does help us if we take those ideas and bring it down into this comparison between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. You may say, I don't see how. Great, I have a question to help you see how. Here's a question, okay? Mount Sinai. Everyone, everyone remember the story of Mount Sinai? Maybe you don't, but for those of you that do. Did the fear that they, we see described here, the fear that they felt at the base of Mount Sinai, did it lead to holiness without which no one will see the Lord? Did the fear they felt at the base of Mount Sinai lead to holiness with the sanctification we see in verse 14, without which no one will see the Lord? Did, did the fear work? It did not. Because 40 days later, after mountain, right? Mount Sinai. Earthquakes and thunder and like, right? 40 days later, they're melting all their jewelry, fashioning it into a calf and dancing around it and saying, look, this is the God that brought you out of Egypt. Fear did not lead to lasting holiness without which no one will see the Lord. 
Now, I know that the scriptures say the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and that is true. But when the Bible's talking like that, 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 that fear is a reverential and respectful fear. It's not like being terrified. It's not the same as, you know, when, when you're watching them scary movies, that feeling you get, you know, or, or you, you're, it, it's, it's dark and the hair stand up on the back of your neck and you're afraid something's around the corner. It's not that type of fear. It's, a, it's, a, it's an honorable, reverential respect that's being talked about when it says that's what is the beginning of wisdom. There, there's, nothing, uh, there's nothing that would lead us to the idea that, that God wants us terrified of him in the way that we would be terrified of other things. And we've got to remember, the law was a tutor, the Bible tells us. It was a teacher. And so even in the Sinai experience, we are being taught for all generations that love not fear leads to true holiness. Remember how I was telling you when we worked through Hebrews 11, God, God was doing things with the people in those times, right? As he runs through the story, Abraham did this by faith, and, and uh, you know, Noah did this by faith, and, and, this, and Rahab did this by faith, and this by faith, right? And, and so we can see the brilliance of God as he orchestrated the entire, uh, the, the entire arc of redemptive history with all the little details that he made sure happened right when they were supposed to, God was loving and working in the lives of those people right there in real time, but he also knew these things were going to be recorded as a teaching tool for the rest of us for all generations. He knew he was going to inspire the author of Hebrews to help us understand what it means to live by faith by writing Hebrews 11 and saying, it was by faith Rahab put that scarlet thing out the window. It was by faith so-and-so did this. By faith so-and-so did this, Right? And that's, that's how brilliant God is. And at the, in the same manner, at the base of Mount Sinai, the law coming down the mountain, it was already doing its job of teaching us. Because we see that everyone was, they were, they were terrified. They didn't want to hear anything else. They, 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 were, they were overwhelmed and scared by this display of the might of God on Mount Sinai. What, okay, so what's the lesson? The lesson is that did not keep them from worshiping a golden calf any more than 40 days. <laughs> okay. that's not it, obviously. And it's not like God was trying stuff to figure out what would work. Okay, I'll I'll scare them first, and then if that doesn't work, we'll try love and see if that gets it done. No, 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 no. God exists outside of time. He knew exactly what would happen, what the reaction would be, and was orchestrating all things for not only their good, but our good. The good of those who love him. And are called according to his purpose. Okay, verse twenty-three has this interesting phrase. Um, some of you Bible nerds can double-check me on this. I, I can't find it anywhere else uh, in the scriptures, so th- that's interesting to me. Uh, it says to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Uh, as I was trying to find out if uh, it is anywhere else in the scriptures, I, I did come across the, the fact that there's a um, <clears throat> there's a I think it's like a fringe sect maybe back in the day, of the Mormon church that called themselves uh, the, the church of the firstborn. So that's kind of a bummer. <laughs> but, uh, but what does that even mean? To, okay, so you, now we're, we're off Sinai. You haven't been brought to Sinai. You've been brought to Zion. Okay, so what, what is Zion like? Well, it's the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. It's important because... People can refer to the, the place where Jerusalem literally is as Zion, but that, he's talking about a heavenly Jerusalem to the myriads of angels, the general assembly, the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. 
It's interesting because Romans 8, uh, in Romans 8, Jesus is called the firstborn among many brethren. And part of what I think we can see here in this unique name for the church, calling us the church of the firstborn, that if Jesus is called the firstborn among many brethren, and now, and, and now by faith, we receive the blessing and the favor of the firstborn through him. He, he is the firstborn and went first, but by faith, we get to come in and, and we get his righteousness, we get his blessing, we get his standing before God. Because he took our punishment on the cross, God has set it up that if we put faith in him, the same robes of righteousness Jesus deserved to wear, we get to wear. The same blessing and favor Jesus deserved for his perfect life of faith, we get to have. And it's, it's also interesting that inspired by the Holy Spirit, this guy was just talking about the whole thing with Jacob and Esau, and this idea of the birthright and all of that, and then comes down and uses this kind of unique phrase, the church of the firstborn. Part of, you, I think most of us could miss it because we are not in a cultural context where this firstborn thing is that prominent, right? We don't, um, we don't specially favor and give big portions of our inheritance only to our firstborn children. Uh, most of us don't. Uh, we don't understand what, what this meant and what this looked like in, in this time, but the, the point is, uh, Jesus, Romans 8, Jesus the firstborn among many brethren. And, and par, like, that's part of, Jesus lived a perfect life by faith, died in our place, rose from the grave, and now is with the Father. And basically what he did there is he blazed the trail that we get to follow by faith. We're going the same route. We get to skip the cross. Hallelujah. Okay. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, but the, the, end, the end deal is the same. To the, to the degree that in the way that in a, in a human context, there, there can only be one firstborn that gets, gets to be treated special. Right? In a family, you only get one firstborn. But somehow, in, in the way God has set this up, we are all going to be treated with that level of favor and blessing if our faith is in Christ. That's, that's better news than you acted like it was, but we'll keep going. <clears throat> I get it. It's a little bit of a foreign concept to us, so maybe it doesn't, it doesn't land like maybe it could, but it, that's important and it means something. Uh, <clears throat> the God, the judge of all, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Again, reference to those that have gone before us. 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. Here we got Abel coming up again. Remember in uh, Hebrews 11, it said Abel's still speaking. That's interesting. Um, and, and you don't hear a whole lot about Abel much else throughout the, the New Testament, um, but this author seems to be zeroed in. And uh, what, what does he mean by uh, this that the, the sprinkled blood of the new covenant, it speaks better than the blood of Abel. It's been understood two ways. The first is that the sacrifice of Christ, the blood sprinkled as a result of the sacrifice of Christ, is better than that blood sprinkled from the sacrifice Abel offered of the flock. That's one way people have thought about it. And I think that could be in there. And this is one of those things where, it, it, you know, either or, or maybe both. I'm not sure. I tend to think, because it says 
the blood of Abel, not the blood of Abel's sacrifice. I tend to think this, the next thing I'm about to say makes a little more sense. And it's precious, man. What did, you got to think about. So what, it's talking about the blood of Abel speaking. So if, if, if the analogy, if, if we're going to use our imagination, if blood speaks, all right? And if you, if you remember back to Genesis, when, uh, when God was talking to Cain about what happened, he said, your brother's blood's crying out to me. So, so even that idea came, came from God. He's not stretching here. What, so if Abel's blood was speaking, what would it be saying? Well, God kind of made that clear. Abel's blood spilt was crying out to God, bring vengeance. But the blood of Christ cries out a different message. Bring mercy. They're both crying out. They're both saying something loud. But the blood of Christ is a message we can rejoice in. Because if the message was still bring vengeance, not one of us would have a shot. Hallelujah. Back to so verse 25, we're back into some what. See to it, here it is. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. That's the what. Right back into why. For, anytime it says for, you could say because in your mind. All right, because if those that if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will they escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. So the what is do not refuse him who is speaking. The why is because what we're talking about is Christ Himself from Zion speaking, not Moses from Sinai. We got Jesus himself speaking to us through his completed word and through his spirit. And for us to refuse that voice is, is an, an immeasurable amount more foolish than it would be for those that might have rejected Moses' voice from Sinai. And, and for you to reject the message of the gospel, to reject the love of God so plainly poured out for us in Christ, for, to reject the good news we have here. The draw of God by his kindness and his goodness towards us, then, then, then the punishment is eternal. <laughs> if, then, then the alternative, if you don't want that, it's, it's, it is big consequences. It is eternal separation from God. So don't refuse him who is speaking because if there was a punishment potential for them refusing Moses, just a guy on a mountain, we got now have Jesus in this heavenly Mount Zion speaking an even, an even greater message. A message, it's, it's an offer like, you know, too good to refuse type thing. If you really think about it, you shouldn't be able to. And if you do, like, you, you, can, you can have it, but clearly that's not what God wants either, which I'm so thankful for. Verse 26, and uh 26 through 28, okay? So we're back to, uh, we're still in why. why. Why not refuse him who is speaking? Because <clears throat> he's warning from heaven, but also his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, talking about Sinai, but now he has promised saying, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. And this expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. <clears throat> Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude 
by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. I told you the second half of 28 gets back into another what. But all in between there is, is why. So what do we see? It calls us to be grateful for an unshakable kingdom in the second half of verse 28. Why? And how do we get, how do we get there? How do we have gratitude for an unshakable kingdom? How do, we, how do we think about that? Well, let's just be real. Oftentimes, it requires some shaking and some damage to the things that can be shaken for us to appreciate what can't be. And that's really what he's saying. I wish that wasn't true about me for sure and for you, man. I love you. I wish you didn't need to have stuff shook so hard sometimes and stuff crumble and break all around you, hit you in your head to appreciate what can't be shaken. But sometimes we do. And one thing I, I thought about in this, it's interesting, you know, it, he makes sure to talk about Zion and this heavenly Jerusalem. It's really interesting that the city of Jerusalem, not too long after the New Testament was finished being written, 70 AD, was totally sacked and destroyed. Like, just in case somebody was, was wondering um, or, or thinking that what God was talking about this whole time was this physical city of Jerusalem, he went ahead and shook that. That came down. So that you knew he was talking about this spiritual reality, something different. It isn't just about physical Jerusalem on physical Mount Zion. And I thought about this too. What is the most dangerous place to be in an earthquake? Like, here's what I'm thinking. You could have so many answers to that. But I'm thinking, would you rather be standing out in the middle of a field during an earthquake or in a building that men built? Any takers on the building that men built in that scenario? If so, we're going to have a free earthquake training class after the service, and we're explaining to you how all this stuff works. You should not want to be in a, if you got a choice to be outside, underneath God's sky, or in a building that men built, when the earth starts to shake, vote no on the man-made structure. And here's what I'm saying to you. When, when God shakes stuff, man-made stuff that's not real and doesn't really help you, it, it will crumble. And we got to get to the point where we're grateful for that. we got to get to the point where we're praying prayers like, Lord, shake whatever needs to be shook so that I'm not trusting in man-made stuff. Whether I made it or some other man made it, I don't want to trust in that. So, Lord, shake it and break it. Take it all down so that I can see what's real. I can have my hope and trust in what's real. Because we build all kind of stuff. And we definitely tend to put our trust in it. And I'm so thankful God will shake stuff without it crushing me into nothing. He'll let stuff fall down around me. So as a son, you see? And any of that could have crushed you. Verse 29 is really the same idea, different analogy, and we need to be thankful for it too, exceedingly thankful, for our God is a consuming fire. The book of Malachi talks about the Lord as a, a refining fire. It says he's like a fuller's soap. Um, this, this idea of, of God almost as uh, the, the fire underneath a crucible, that if you put in or mixed with rock and all this different kind of stuff, but what you have in there is, are precious things that when you, 
when you heat it all the way up, all the useless stuff will burn away. And the precious things, the things you, you want to stay, they'll rise to the top. And God is a consuming fire. Peter really liked this analogy. Let me read you this, and this is, this is the end of the sermon, for those of you wondering. First <clears throat> Peter 1, verse 3. We're just going to end with this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which perishes, though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Can I just say this one more time, and that'll really be the end. Why? What's the why of all this? So that this faith, being more precious than gold, may be found to result. What is the faith for? So that what we have at the result, the end is praise glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. God, thank you so much for the second half of Hebrews 12. Thank you that you are a compassionate, long-suffering, patient Father that does not just give us the what and tell us to shut up. You're a Father that will go to great lengths to explain to us the why. And Lord, a part of me believes that's because you made us like you. And I think you delight in explaining why. I think you're not annoyed by it. And this is not the point of today's sermon, but God, please help me be more like that with my kids and with people. Because sometimes I get annoyed uh, that I have to explain why. And I want to be more like you in that. And God, I thank you for this long train of thought starting in Hebrews 11 that leads us to this robust idea of what faith really is. Not mere belief, but a confident trust in and obedience to you and your word. May we continue to grow in faith. May we walk in faith. And may be all, all of this done uh, in love. May we understand, Lord, that None of this gets going, started whatsoever without your love. That's the start. And that we're not going to have true, genuine faith if we don't first love you in return. This is about trust. Thank you that you set it up this way. Thank you that you've not set up a, just a king-subject scenario with us. You had every right to do it. This is not just a master-slave scenario, though you had every right to do that. that. That makes even more sense in some ways than you setting this up as a father and sons and daughters. Because you have to put up with so much more stuff to treat us like sons and daughters. I'm so thankful that you do. Thank you for loving us in a way that draws us to you. Thank you for granting us faith. Thank you for being with us in all of this. Uh, Lord, I ask that uh, the seeds of your word that 
have gone forth today would find fertile soil in our hearts. They would take root. And as they take root, I ask God that they would shove out and uproot any bitterness that may have seated itself in our hearts and might lead to the defilement of many. We need your help, Lord. We can't do any of this without you. We need you. Thank you that we have you by faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.